0: Two weeks ago, we talked about the teaching aspect of disciple making and how important it is that we teach others, but that we are also taught and we grow. And we looked at Hebrews 5 and 6 and the maturity that God calls us to so that the more that that we consume the solid food of the word of God, the more that we grow and mature in our faith and and that aspect. And last weekend, Pastor Joe Robb, if you were here, talked about Baptism for a little bit in the Psalm 46 and and how in baptism, the worst thing that could ever happen to us, death, happened at that font. And we're going to continue that conversation of what does that mean that God makes disciples through baptism and then teaching so that we might live out the faith that God has given to us. As we begin our time together, let's begin with a word of prayer, we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather together, for your word which changes and shapes our life. And Lord, as you speak to us this morning, may it be your words, your work, your spirit that does something in our life to continue to shape us and mold us, to mature us in our faith, that we might reflect who you have called and created us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we start our time together, uh, I want to ask you this question. What can water do? So this is kind of a quiz, meaning if you watch the video during the offering, you will do well. But if you were ignoring the video during the offering, uh, you will have to cheat off a neighbor. So I want to ask the question, what can water do? Just in the world today in general, what are some of the things that water is useful for? And I'm actually going to have you turn to the person next to you or around you. If you're sitting by yourself, uh, talk to yourself. Just don't make it look like you're doing that. That's kind of crazy looking but but to talk to the person around you and tell them what are some things that water does go All right, let's see how many we got. So, so how many of you said water can give life or water helps create life, right? So, so if you have seeds, if you're doing a science fair project and you're doing that water or soda or what makes a seed grow best, right? Like water helps to give life. How many of you put water can take life? Anyone say that, right? If you have a flood, if there's a drowning, water can take life. How about this one? Uh, water is gentle and soothing. Anyone say that? There are some people who, who love that, that, that noise that helps them go to sleep, so they put on like a bubbling brook or something like that, and that soothing sound helps them to fall asleep. How many of you said water creates energy? Anyone say that? Right, okay. think about it. Some use that, the water mills, and so, so they use water to help create energy, and if you don't think water is that powerful, uh, go to Niagara Falls, and you will see exactly how powerful water actually is. Uh, water cleanses or cleans. How many said that? Water cleans things? So, so you'll probably be raising your hand if you do the dishes or laundry. If you don't do dishes and laundry, you might not even have said that because you don't care. And, uh, but you can also say that water quenches thirst. Right? How many said water quenches thirst? Right? So uh, we have our Grace Classic going on and, and uh, hopefully most of those who are playing actually drink some sort of water or Gatorade or something that quenches thirst. Water does so many things and we see water throughout the scriptures. Water is essential in the word of God. Water is there from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 where it said the spirit of God hovered over the deep and over the waters and then God created the water and the land and he separated water and land from one another. We see water uh, when Moses is put into the basket, into the water, or we see the water of the Red Sea when when the Israelites are escaping Egypt and they come to the Red Sea and and God parts the water so that they might walk through and find life on the other side. Only to be wandering in the wilderness and then realizing they don't have any water and so they're crying out to God, God, we are thirsty. And God says, I will bring forth for you water from a rock. Jesus turns water into wine. Jesus walks on the water. Jesus calms the storm with the wind and the waves. Or Noah is thrown off of the boat, or Jonah is thrown off of the boat into the water. And Noah builds an ark because of the flood and the water. There is water at the baptism of Jesus. And there is water, if you read very carefully, that is found in Jesus' death. When it says that it's Jesus hung on the cross The centurion pierced his side and blood and water flowed forth. Water is found throughout the scriptures in a way that brings both death and life. And today as we look at baptism, we're gonna come to understand how does water, the water of baptism, bring both death and life in our life, both at the font, but even today. I'd love for you to take the Bibles that are in front of you, unless you brought your Bible from home, and open up to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, uh, if you're using the Bible in front of you, you can find it on page 942, page 942. Now, as we look at Romans 6, uh, Paul is going to use the image of baptism, but he's going to use it to answer a much bigger question that he is having the people wrestle with. If you read the first few chapters of Romans, Paul is talking about God's wrath upon sinners, and so Romans chapter three twenty-three, he says, "All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." And and in the first couple chapters, lists all these different sins that God's people commit, and God's wrath upon that sin. When Paul gets to Romans chapter five. He starts to turn the page to show, okay, now that you know your sin, now that you know God's wrath, now that you know the punishment for what you have done." Romans chapter 6:23, "The wages of sin is death." He goes, now, "Now I want you to understand the grace that is found in Jesus Christ." And so Romans chapter five verse 20, he says this: "Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through jesus christ our lord now when you read that there are some christians who read that and they will take this to mean something that paul did not mean for it to mean we're actually going to see him answer that in romans 6 but when paul says where sin increased grace abounded all the more some will say well then i could just live however i want because the more I sin, the more God is gracious. And if God loves to be gracious, be slow to anger, but abounding in steadfast love, if he sh- loves to show love to a, a thousands of generations, then I'm just gonna help Jesus do what he loves to do. So I'm gonna keep sinning so God can keep forgiving. Right, like, like sin doesn't matter because God is gracious. So I can just keep doing it. And Paul is gonna tell us, no, no, no. That's, that's, that's not what grace is about. Grace, is not an excuse to sin. You can't just say, well, I'm just gonna keep doing this because God can just keep forgiving me. That's cheap grace and not real grace. And so he goes on in verse one of chapter six, and he says this, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You see, he's asking the question that what he just said begs. He says, by no means, for how can we who died to sin still live in it? He's saying that the more you sin, it's not the more people see Christ. The more you sin, the more the people see the world around us. It says evil cannot bring about the good that God wants in our life and in this world. In fact, it's the very opposite. Now, what Paul is not talking about is just this normal general sin, meaning uh, the sin that we don't do on purpose because we all understand that we are going to sin. A little bit later uh, in Romans, Paul will say this, the good I want to do, I don't do, and that which I don't want to do, I keep on doing. So if I do what I don't want to do, it is not I who do it, but sin that dwells within me that does it. It's one of my favorite tongue twisters in scripture, right? Basically what he's saying there is this, He he says, there is good and I want to do that good, but I just don't do it. And there is evil and I don't want to do that evil, but I keep doing it. He goes, what a wretched man I am. Who's gonna save me from this? but thanks be to God who gives me the victory in Jesus Christ. That's not what Paul's talking about. When he says, are we to continue in sin, that word continue actually means, are you going to keep doing habitual, intentional, purposely practiced evil, believing that if you just continue to do evil on purpose, God's going to just keep forgiving you. And what does Paul says? He says, no. Basically says, knock it off. Stop it. That's not what God's grace is about. But the struggle for you and me is is we literally want the best of both worlds. We literally want the best of both kingdoms. We want the best of the kingdom of God and all that he has to offer us, and then we want the best of the kingdom of this world. We want everything that this world has to offer us, and we want everything that God has to offer us. And, And Paul understands that you can't have both. And so he's going to use baptism to help us understand that we can't continue in sin and that if we follow the kingdom of God, that we cannot continue to follow the things of the kingdom of this world. So he uses this motif, this picture of baptism, verse 3. It says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death? we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised by the dead from the dead by the glory of the Father that we too might walk in the newness of life Paul is saying that that font that the waters of baptism they are a sort of watery grave a baptismal tomb that when we enter into it God puts us to death so that he might make us alive again Because if you think about it, in order for us to have a resurrection, resurrection necessitates death. In order for something to rise again, it has to die first. So, in order for us to come to life in the waters of baptism, that means that we first have to die so that we can be brought back to life. This was actually something that was practiced in the ancient church uh, in their baptismal practices. As I was reading about how the ancient church did baptism, what they would often do for adults is they would take adults into a a small room, maybe the size of an office or a cubicle, and and there would be no windows and only one door on that office or in in that room. And there would be water about waist high, and and the pastor would be in there, and and that person would enter into that room to be baptized, and they'd get into the water, stand next to the pastor, and, and the pastor would look at them and say, Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty? And the moment they said, yes, I believe, the pastor would forcibly grab them and dunk them and hold them underwater. This was before the days of lawyers and litigation because that really wouldn't fly in the world today. But, But at that time, it was okay. So they would dunk them. They would hold them underwater for a little bit. And if you were the one being baptized in that moment, what did you think was happening to you? You were being drowned. You were dying. And after a moment the pastor would grab you and he would pull you back up out of the water and what's the first thing you would do when you come up out of the water? You breathe and you breathe in the breath of life and Paul says in baptism you are immersed in the water so that you might die so that coming out of the water you might have that spirit that breath of new life placed within you. But that work, if if you read this, if you notice, it is completely His work. In none of this does it say you do anything. All of this is the work of God by which He puts you to death and brings you to life. This is why we baptize babies. Because it's it's not our work. If If we contributed anything to it, it would no longer be grace, but works. It is solely the work of God which is why we bring infants to the waters of holy baptism and have them baptized because they can't do anything. It's the most beautiful image of the grace of God. In fact, uh, this is why this is so significant. There are some who will say, well, yeah, but, but infants don't understand. They, they can't confess. They can't say what they believe. And if they can't confess and if they can't say it and they can't speak it, then, then it makes no sense because they should have to understand it first. Well, if that's true, then, then what really is the difference between what an adult understands and an infant understands? I mean, think about this. If this sanctuary, just look around you at the the size of this sanctuary. If this sanctuary could contain the infinite knowledge of God, and it can't obviously, but let's just say this sanctuary could contain the infinite knowledge of God. An adult might know, what, about that much? And an infant like that much. What's the difference? There is none. And it's not about us. It's not about our work. It's about what God has done in the life of that child. And if the Holy Spirit wants to place faith in the life of an infant, who are we to say that the Holy Spirit can't do that? Are we limiting the power of the Holy Spirit by the limited understanding of our own intellect? We are because it's not ours, otherwise it's law, it's his work, it is pure gospel. One of the places that I first really came to see how beautiful this picture was, uh, was with my grandmother. My grandmother, when she was passing away, went through Alzheimer's, I've shared a little bit of that story before. And in the midst of her passing away through Alzheimer's, uh, I would come and visit her and pray with her and spend time with her. And and when I would enter into her room, she would call me by her husband's name who had passed away probably three, four years before, maybe even a little bit longer than that. But she would continually call me by his name. And I would do the Lord's Prayer with her, and I would do the creed with her. And she might remember bits and pieces, but, but other is, she wouldn't remember it at all. And in that moment, the question would be, well, well, if she can't remember the creed, if she can't remember the Lord's Prayer, if she can't remember who Jesus is, then how in the world do we know that she is saved? Because she can't remember it. Because it's not about what she remembers, but it's about the one who remembers her. That's what baptism is all about. It's not about us remembering him, but it's about he who remembers us and his promise to us in the waters of holy baptism. The one who, in those waters, makes us dead so that we might come alive again. And then we teach. And here's why we teach. A couple of weeks ago, I said the, the part of why we teach is because uh, the more we teach, the more we grow, and the more we grow, the more that we want to be taught. It's like feeding our children. The more you feed your children, the bigger they grow, and the bigger they grow, the more you have to feed them. And it is a vicious, terrible cycle as a parent because they keep eating you out of house and home, right? Like, so so you feed them and they grow, they grow and you feed them. It's the same thing with our faith. The more you feed your faith with the Word of God, the more you want more of the Word of God in this beautiful cycle by which God grows you in your faith. But imagine the opposite. Imagine parents have a little baby and they take that little baby and they put that baby in a crib and they put them in the corner and they say, well, good luck. I hope you can feed yourself and change yourself and take care of yourself and we'll see what happens. Well, what would happen to a baby who is not fed? It would grow weaker and weaker and weaker to the point where it dies. And so is our faith. In the waters of baptism, God grants to us a faith, but that infant-like faith needs to be grown and taught and fed with the Word of God. Because if it's not, that infant-like faith can grow weaker and weaker and weaker to the point where it dies, and we lose the salvation that God has given to us in the waters of baptism, because Scripture reminds us we can lose that salvation that God gives to us. And so we are baptized, but we are also taught And so Paul continues, and he says these words in verse 5. He says, For therefore, if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in his resurrection like his. For we know that the old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Paul is saying that there are some life-changing moments that you will experience Whether that is a a, a birth or that is the death of a loved one, whether that is a marriage or a divorce, whether that's a graduation or a new job or getting fired from a job that you cherish, that that there are life-changing moments that you experience. But the greatest, most life-changing moment that you can ever experience is the one that takes place right there at the baptismal font. That is the greatest moment of your life because in that moment you receive the greatest promise that God could ever give you. Jesus talks about this in John 3, Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus and as he's speaking with Nicodemus uh, he's talking about the kingdom of God and entering into heaven and Jesus says truly I say to you unless one is born again he cannot see the kingdom of God and Nicodemus goes well I don't understand how I can be born again I'm old. Like, I I can't get little again and then get into my mother's womb. Like, he's talking about this physical birth. Like, like, this is impossible. It's not going to happen. And Jesus is going, going, you don't understand what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about your physical birth. He says, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. For that which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. And each of those births offer to us a very different promise. Think about this. What is the only promise that you are given in birth. It's not the type of family you will grow up in. It's it's not if you will have two healthy parents your whole life. We know tragedy strikes. It's not the livelihood you'll have. It's not your academic or athletic career. None of that is guaranteed to anyone. What is the only promise you are given in birth? It's that someday you will die, lest Jesus returns first. That's it. In baptism, God also gives one promise. And God doesn't give a promise at the baptismal font saying, well, now that you are part of the kingdom of God, I'm gonna get you a better job. I'm gonna have you have a better marriage. I'm like he doesn't promise those things. He says at the baptismal font, there is one promise and one promise only, but that promise is that you will have life. Our first birth promises death, but our second birth promises life. And the currency for that life is the death of Jesus Christ. He pays for it. It's what he has done for you and for me. And then when he sets us free because of his death, notice what he says in verse 7. He says, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now notice the word he uses there. He doesn't say, I have set you free to sin. I have set you free from sin. And those are two very different things. To be set free from sin means I set you free from the punishment of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6, 23 to 24. He says, you who face death all day long, who are like sheep being led to the slaughter, are more than victorious through Christ Jesus, who gives us the victory." You have been set free, not so that you can go out and sin and live however you want, but you have been set free from the punishment of sin so that you might live in the power that God gives you so that you would no longer have dominion over you from anything that this world has. And how many of us allow the things of this world to have dominion over us? How many of us have our passions, our desires? How many of us allow our calendars or our children's sports calendars or our desires for their academic career or their friendships? How many of us allow our children or our, our jobs to run our very life and have dominion over us? And God is saying, there should be only one thing that has dominion over you, and that's Grace not the things of this broken, sinful world, so that you might have a new identity, an identity that reminds that you are united with Christ. But what we struggle with when we're united with Christ is we struggle with the fact that, that instead of fully embracing that new life, we keep Jesus at arm's length. We're like, like I want you, Jesus, but I still kind of want the things of this world. I love you, Jesus, but I still really love the things of this world. I love the sinful practices that make me feel good. And Paul says, you can't have both. He finishes by saying this. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of, right, of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but grace. Don't allow the things of this world to have power over you. You are united to Christ. Don't hold him at arm's length, but be fully embraced by the new life that God has for you because new life brings new living. Worldly life will bring worldly living, but divine spiritual life will bring divine spiritual living, and a new life brings new living. One must die so the other can live. It's like this. Imagine a wedding, your wedding, a wedding of someone that you attended and and the groom is standing up front and and he's facing the back and, and he's looking forward to seeing his bride dressed in white with her father on his arm walking forward. And the bride approaches and everyone stands and they turn and they face her and, and, and the, the groom and the bride are standing arm in and arm and, and they exchange their vows and they exchange their rings and, and there's a celebration and as they walk out, everyone's clapping and they, they go to the reception and it's a beautiful reception and they go on their honeymoon and they come back and, and they are so excited for this new life that they have, as the two have been united to become one, fully embracing that married life together. Till one day, one of the spouses says to the other spouse, hey, um, I'll see you later, I have a date, I'm going out. To which the other spouse goes, uh, I think not. You can't be married to me and date them. Right? Like, like you can't have both. You can't marry me and date someone else. It doesn't work that way. That's exactly what he says here. God says, you cannot be married to me Fully embraced by my grace and mercy and still believe that you can date the things of this world. You can't have both. And yet there are so many Christians who will say, well, you know what, as long as I have the grace of God, I can look at whatever I want to on the internet. It shouldn't matter. I can watch whatever movies I want. I can listen to whatever music I want. I can drink as much as I want. It doesn't matter if I get drunk. I can say and use whatever language I want to say. I can treat others in whatever way I want to treat them. I can run my business in whatever way I want to run my business. I can just live my life the way I want to live my life because, because I just relax and fall back into God's grace. And God is saying, you can't fully embrace me and this world at the same time. It's one or the other. One must die so that the other can live. Because whatever you embrace, whatever claims you will direct you. So what claims you? Is it what God has said about you in the waters of baptism? Or is it the things of this world? And not just on a Sunday morning. And not just when it's easy because you're in God's house and in his word but does your tuesday identity reflect your sunday morning identity does your thursday evening and your saturday afternoon identity reflect your baptismal identity by which god has named you with his name and claimed you in those waters and put to death the old so that you might fully embrace the new life that is yours in jesus christ and that you might be reminded No no matter what happens, no matter what your life looks like, that you are His and He is yours. And that new life is yours in Jesus Christ, fully embraced by the one who fully embraces you, that we might know that we are children of God. The old is dead, the new is alive, and we are fully embraced by the grace that changes our life now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.